And certainly, if it is an enabling technology, and it turns out you have to get permission before you can use its enabling capability, then you're going to stymie the potential exploration of ideas and innovation. So at no time during the course of its evolution did I ever advocate for anything other than allowing people to try things out. So this notion of permissionless innovation, I think, is a very critical part of the Internet's success story. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Wind Surf, an internet pioneer commonly known as one of the fathers of the internet. He co-designed the TCP/IP protocols which lie at the heart of the internet. Wind is currently the chief internet evangelist at Google. Among many accolades, Wint has received the Turing Award, Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the National Medal of Technology. In our conversation with Wint, we cover the significance of the internet as a technology, building blocks of the internet, the internet's product market fit, and how it enables permissionless innovation, current challenges, and what the future may hold. Welcome, Dr. Sir. It's amazing to have you here today. I'm happy to join you, especially using technology that I had the opportunity to uh, have something to do with. So that's kind of a nice little addition, I guess, to the whole process. Definitely. And you are one of the true internet pioneers and uh, named one of the fathers of the internet. How do you think about the internet as a technology in comparison to other major technologies throughout the arc of human history? Well, I think the most important characteristic of internet is that it is an, an enabling technology. So it's not an end in itself at all, and it never uh, was intended to be. It was always a technology that would enable other things to happen, notably harnessing computer power in networks of computers that link not only the computers, but the people who use them and the software that was inside. And so for me, enabling technologies are sometimes the most powerful because they enable things that you couldn't predict and couldn't imagine. Uh, and yet uh, they have enormous power to facilitate invention simply by being there and being operable. 
the, the fact that the internet has turned into something which is supportable, sustainable as a business is also very important because in the absence of that business model, it's not clear that a broad portion of the population would have access to this enabling capacity. Uh, if the governments of the world had to pay for all of it, including use by the general you know, populace, uh, it's not clear, you know, just just how far that would go. And I certainly felt that way in the late 1980s when it was still purely a government-sponsored operation, at least here in the U.S. And maybe as a simple starting point to get parity, how do you define the Internet? Well, I see this as a technical platform. As a metaphor, imagine that it's a big flat table. And it has the property that it's flat and it's perpendicular to the gravitational field. And you can put things on it and it holds them up and you can move things around and they stay you know, at, the, at the same height as the table. And it allows you then to put things on top of the table and then build things uh, above it. Uh, there's, of course, much more to it than, than simply a flat surface. It also allows information to flow from one computer to another in a way that is end-to-end. -end. And this is a very important notion. If you put bits in at one end, the same bits pop out at the other end. That was a very important concept in the Internet's design. This uniformity, the ability to put information in, get it out the other end without alteration. It also took into account the possibility that bits could be lost in the process of going through from you know one machine through multiple networks to the other. Uh, and so we built in mechanisms for recovering from loss and for assessing integrity of the information as it, as it went through the multiple networks. We also introduced a uniform naming system and identification system so that anything that was in this internet environment could refer to anything else that was part of that environment. So this, this uniformity uh, of process and identification is what makes it a nice flat uniform surface on top of which to build new things. And how do you think about the internet versus the web? They are absolutely not the same thing. The internet, one, one metaphor for the internet that I use a lot is postcards, because the basic internet protocol layer just looks like electronic postcards. Postcard has a to address and a from address and some content, and you put it into the post box and it comes out the other end, sometimes, not always. And so that's the best effort system. That's true of internet packets, it's true of postcards. If you put two postcards in the post box addressed to the same destination, they don't necessarily come out in the same order you put them in. This is true of internet packets, although most internet routers try really hard to keep things in order, but there's no absolute requirement of that in the internet protocol spec. There is um, a recognition that if you things get out of order, you need to put them back into order. If things get lost, they have to be uh, resent. And if, uh, if there is a retransmission process, you may actually get two copies of an internet packet, uh, even if you only put one in at the beginning because of adaptive alternate routing and recovery from loss. So this doesn't sound like a very useful system, this sort of best efforts, lossy, possibly duplicative system. 
So you put another layer of protocol on top of that called the transmission control protocol, and that takes care of numbering all the packets, making sure they got there in order, dealing with flow control so you don't have a congestion problem, dealing with retransmission and loss and duplicate detection. And at that point, you have a fairly solid capability to move a string of bits from point A to point B across multiple networks. Then uh, you get Tim Berners-Lee, who is trying to figure out how can he help his colleagues in the physics world share information conveniently, find and reference information. So he comes up, he sees the Internet, and he comes up with an idea, which he calls the hypertext transport protocol, which is a layer on top of TCP. And it allows you to make reference to target objects, digital objects, using URLs, uniform record locators. There were uniform record names as well, URNs, and um, it's not clear to what degree that actually has been exercised as much as the URL concept. But the HTTP protocol refers to digital objects, uh, uses domain names that have to be resolved into internet addresses before you can set up a TCP connection, which carries the HTTP connection. And then you get to do things like pull the document in, pull a web page in, push things out, and interact with the target web page or the target web server. So Tim's idea was to take advantage of this uniform internet platform and then build something on top of that. And of course, anyone paying any attention since the World Wide Web application came along has seen continued building of new applications on top of the web platform, the web HTTP and HTML platforms. And so this layering notion has been a very powerful concept that was evolved actually in the predecessor to the internet, the ARPANET, which is developed in the late 1960s and, uh, and continued until 1990 as a platform of research and use. But it spawned the internet design, which comes in the uh, 1973 to 1983 period. And internet gets turned on in 1983, World Wide Web comes along at the end of 1991. And of course, here we are in 2021, 20 years later, uh, living in a world that is uh, deeply informed by uh, and influenced by web-based applications, among other applications that are also possible on the internet. It seems to me that you're thinking about the nature of that internet and, and sort of why it matter in terms of enablement and human agency, human empowerment. Love to hear your thinking on that, maybe riff on that for a bit. You know, what is really the nature of the internet and, and why does it matter? Well, it, it, of course, the original intent was to allow computers on any network to interact with each other in a uniform way. And we wanted to allow lots of different kinds of networks to be built. And so the original ARPANET was an experiment in packet switching, which you can think of as electronic postcards. Uh, and it involved interconnecting computers of different brands. That was an important element because the uh, networking uh, at that time, we're talking the late 1960s and early 1970s, did have uh, common brand networks. In other words, IBM had SNA and Digital Equipment Corporation had DACnet, but it only connected the same brands of computers. The internet and the ARPANET were intended to deal with multiple brands of computers, establishing commonality where there was a high degree of diversity. Uh, in the case of internet, it added another level of diversity, which is different kinds of packet switch nets. 
So we were looking at packet satellite, we were looking at mobile packet radio in addition to dedicated wireline systems. And as, as new technologies came along, like optical fiber, uh, we were able to just sweep those new technologies into the system because the internet protocol layer was defined in a way that said, you don't care how the packets are being carried. You're ignorant of, of, of the packets being carried. And you're also at that layer in the protocol, ignorant of the applications. So the internet protocol layer doesn't know anything about the purpose of the bits that it's carrying from point A to point B. That's super important for two reasons. One of them is that if you invent a new application, you don't have to change the network because it doesn't know about applications. And of course, if new technologies come along, you can just sweep them in supporting the internet protocol layer. Uh, there's one other thing that's very important about this whole history, and that is that the process by which the Internet was evolved uh, was done in the open. All the information for it was public. The first paper was published in uh, May of 1974 in IEEE Transactions on Communications. And all of the uh, institutions that have uh, emerged that have standardized the protocols make all those things publicly available free of charge. This is different from an awful lot of other standards development organizations like the International Standards Organization, which actually charges you to get access to the standards. And we were very fortunate that the government and then other parties uh, were able to support the protocol development to the present day in a way that makes them all uniformly and freely accessible. And I think that contributed a great deal to the rapid spread and implementation of the internet and its protocols. So I guess the way, how generic the design was led to the growth, if you will, of the internet. And basically, even if the technologies changed, on how the information was getting transferred. It really didn't matter if the protocols were generic enough to support that. In that light, just taking a step back, what are the key building blocks, blocks of internet and how does it work? Well, I mentioned protocols and that's the internet is really a collection of hundreds of protocols. Now, a protocol is a term that is, we borrowed from the diplomatic world. Protocols are the, the, the ways in which you choose to interact in a diplomatic setting. It might be the form and structure of treaties that you agree on. And in the case of computer protocols, it's what kinds of information do the computers exchange and what form does it take? And if you standardize on that, so computers on either end of the communication can anticipate what they're going to get or what they're going to send, and if all computers agree on that practice, and if all the underlying networks can carry the common digital objects that we call internet packets, sometimes encapsulated in a lower level protocol, frame level protocol or something, as long as the uniformity is maintained at some level in the system, so everybody knows what to expect, that has an extremely powerful enabling effect. This is, this is why in the Internet of Things world, uh, which is simply devices that are programmable and have access to the Internet, we've reached the point now where you almost don't think about and worry about the basic ability of any object to communicate with any other object over the Internet. Now, there are, however, layers above the basic 
TCP and user datagram protocol over IP, there are additional layers on top of that. And if, if, if the parties need to communicate at higher levels in the protocol stack and they don't agree what those layers are, then they won't successfully communicate. So commonality is vital here. It's just like communicating orally. If you don't speak the same language, it's very difficult to cope with that. You could say, well, what about language translation, which by the way, we've gotten very good at now that machine learning is a real technology, but that interposes something between the two speakers. And there's always a possibility that the translation will be wrong. And so the better tactic is for both parties to be able to speak the same language. There's so much brilliance in the design, especially in terms of redundancy and, and of course, scalability in, in the way it was all constructed, in which you were instrumental. I, I guess one question, what would you have done differently? Having the benefit, this very powerful benefit of hindsight, is there anything you would have done differently? A glib answer, of course, would be no, uh, that would be wrong. Uh, there are two things that immediately come to mind. Uh, one of them, of course, is our uh, discovery that the address space that we estimated would be needed in the 1970s turned out to be wrong, and now we need a much larger address space. So we chose a 32-bit address space, which is enough to have 4.3 billion terminations on the system across all the networks if, in fact, the allocation of internet addresses was done densely. It was actually not done all that densely. And uh, we broke it up into networks of groups of IP addresses where they're now, those are now called autonomous systems, which is a network consuming a certain portion of the IP address space uh, and generally not totally densely. So the problem there is that we ran out of, of addresses uh, more quickly than we expected. Now, ironically, when the 32-bit IP version 4 address space was chosen in the mid-1970s, um, it actually lasted until 2011. And at that point, the parties who were assigning and allocating IP addresses to parties who needed them ran out of fresh IP address space in 2011, that would be the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. Um, but by 1996, it was clear to most of us that we were going to need a larger address space because the number of networks was rapidly proliferating. The number of computers was growing rapidly because of laptops and desktops and eventually pads and, of course, today, mobiles. So uh, in 96, there was an agreement in the Internet Engineering Task Force to introduce a new IP address structure called IP version 6. And uh, that had 128-bit address space, which is 3.4 times 10 to the 38th addresses. This is 300, 380 trillion or 3.4? 3.4 times 10 to the 38th addresses, 340 trillion, trillion, trillion addresses, which is certainly enough to last until after I'm dead and then it's somebody else's problem. So the problem is that at the time this was introduced, 1996, the internet is in the middle of its dot boom period because Netscape Communications, which built browsers and servers, web browsers and web servers, 
had just done its IPO the previous year. The stock had gone through the roof. Everybody was throwing money, venture capital people throwing money at the internet and anything that looked like it had something to do with the internet. No one was paying any attention to re-implementing IP version four into IP version six. They were all busy just grabbing whatever was already available, which is the 32-bit address space software, and just building things on top of it. And so there was this enormous, it's, it's a little bit like the theory that the universe starts, you know, with this big bang, and then it expands faster than the speed of light in a fraction of a second. The internet was a little bit like that during this dot boom period. And so um, it turned out to be hard to get people to pay attention to IP version six, especially given that nobody had run out of IPv4 address space yet. So it's like the guy with a hole in the roof, you know, when it's sunny, it doesn't bother. When it's raining, it's not safe to do anything. So nothing ever gets fixed. So it has been a long 20 plus year process. I think we're getting to the point where people are recognizing that maybe we better get IPv6 out there and get it working everywhere. The US government has announced that it wants to get there by 2025. It probably won't, but it's good to have an, you know, a goal. Uh, so I'm hoping that that plus the Internet of Things plus mobile phones, smartphones, will drive the demand for uh, address space sufficiently that we really will transition into an IPv6 capability. At Google, for example, we ran out of address space in our own backbone networks and for supporting our data centers, and we had to switch over internally to IPv6 in order to get things to work. So, uh, but not everyone operates at the same scale that Google does. So yeah, I'm hoping that we'll get to the point that we'll get to V6. So that's one thing. Unfortunately, if I had told my younger self to go start with 128-bit address space, no one would have believed me. They'd laugh me out of the room. What do you mean 3.4 times 10 to the 38th addresses? You out of your cotton picking mind? So uh, it probably would not have worked. The second thing that people always complain about is the network is insecure. This is terrible. You know, why didn't you fix it to begin with? And there are several answers to that. The first one is that, of course, we knew that security was important. For, for Pete's sake, we were a defense advanced research projects agency project. Uh, and we were building this to support command and control for the defense department using computers. So, of course, we knew that security was important. The thing is that I worked very closely with the National Security Agency during the early stages of the design of the TCP IP protocol suite. But the equipment that was available to achieve that security tended to be classified. And so I couldn't actually engage very broadly with a lot of the community that was developing the Internet because they were all graduate students and didn't have clearances. So some of the equipment that we had to use at the time simply wasn't available to the general uh, community that was developing the internet. That's the first point. The second point is that packet crypto was in fact a brand new problem. Uh, it wasn't the same as continuous link encryption at all. And in fact, we had to invent technologies for packetized cryptography. In particular, if the packets could get out of order, you need to decrypt them out of order. And so there were a bunch of things you had to do in order to make that work. Some of that information was considered classified at the time. To make matters worse, 
one of the pieces of cryptography, which we all use all the time today, was called public key cryptography. And the idea for that also came out of Stanford with Diffie and Marty Hellman published a paper in 1976. That was the year I joined the defense department at ARPA to continue managing the program, which I had been engaged in since 1973 while I was at Stanford. So 76, this article comes along. It's a bombshell because it's, it's contemplating a completely different way of using cryptography where two different keys are involved. And of course, there's no implementation of it. So I'm sitting at ARPA running the program thinking, man, that's really impressive, but I can't do anything with it. Well, by 77, 78, really, I think, and if I'm remembering correctly, there was an implementation of the idea. It was called RSA. However, 1978, I'm two years into the program at ARPA, and I want to freeze the system so I can build and demonstrate it because it's been going on since 1973. So I've got five years into the program, and the question is, do I stop everything and implement a whole new suite of cryptographic you know, mechanisms or not? And given the limitations of classification and everything else, it seemed to me that the, all the ideas that I could see for use of these new cryptographic ideas could be retrofitted into the system. So I made, came to the two conclusions. The first one is we can fit this stuff in later. Second, we can fit it in for the Defense Department when needed. And in fact, we did have parallel stuff going on. And finally, I was thinking, you know, graduate students are not the best choice of disciplined users of cryptographic keys. Key management is not easy, as everyone knows from their own experience with password management, which is similar in character and also difficult. So I thought, you know, I'm just not going to try to force this kind of discipline on the community that's developing the Internet. It will come when the need is is uh, apparent. Uh, well, we probably should have observed that need and worked harder to get more cryptography into the system. But I hope you've noticed that crypto is getting in there more and more and more. You're seeing TLS, you're seeing Quick, you're seeing... Uh, a variety of uses for digital signatures. You're starting to see crazy stuff like NFT and blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and all that. So you're starting to see these technologies show up. Uh, and eventually I think we'll get to the point where the internet is more secure than it is right now, just because the motivation has gone up uh, to achieve that objective. On a macro level, if we hone in on this concept of product market fit, and you have a very unique lens on this, having been there from the very beginning, you've seen the evolution of the internet. But in terms of product market fit, thinking about the internet as a product, where is it right now in its evolution? Well, it, you know, I want to be very careful about um, how we define what we're talking about. I'm going to respond to you first with a non-web answer. In other words, I'm just looking at the infrastructure that I think of as Internet. I think of the web as a layer on top of that. So Internet as a product is a service, basically. And you see ISPs all over the world. Uh, some of them are traditional telecom companies and some are brand new. 
are, are offering services, but not everybody has access to it, either because the infrastructure isn't available, especially in rural parts of the world, or because it's not affordable, which is a different problem, but equally uh, concerning. So uh, about 55% of the world's population has access to the internet one way or another. Significant amounts of that percentage are getting access through mobile technology, which is relatively new to the internet world. It comes along through the iPhone in, uh, in 2007, although I think there may have been one or two attempts by others to build smartphones before that, but the, but the iPhone introduction is probably the most clearly significant and visible. So a lot of people have access to that using wireless technologies, whether it's 3G, 4G, 5G coming, or Wi-Fi. A lot of them still have access using wired technologies like Ethernet. So this, the current state of affairs is that you have product as service and you have product as equipment. So that could be Wi-Fi transceivers and, you know, base stations or, you know, desktops, laptops, routers, and firewalls and all kinds of other things that are associated with the Internet, including the Internet of Things, which is appliances that have uh, Internet capability. So uh, at this point, it's a very healthy market, although there's still a lot of work to be done in order to make the Internet fully accessible and affordable and sustainable everywhere in the world. And probably the most dramatic development, uh, two developments along those uh, lines are subsea cables, optical fiber cables, linking continents together at super high speed, terabits per second of capacity. Many, many cables being built now, many more than I ever expected. And second, of course, satellite communication. We've had geo-satellites for ages, you know, 50 years or so, but, uh, but there's a high latency for geosynchronous satellites. The uh, O3B group put up MEO, medium uh, Earth orbit satellites, at 8,000 kilometers with a much reduced latency, but bandwidths, with, which, uh, well, we're, we're not bad. They're in the hundreds of megabits a second. Most recently, of course, you're starting to see low Earth orbit satellite efforts, most significantly Elon Musk's Starlink. And here we're talking potentially 42,000 satellites in this, you know, just covering the entire globe, rendering it impossible to avoid access to the Internet any from anywhere, including the North and South Poles. Cost, again, could turn out to be a major issue. So, again, affordability may turn out to be the, a key issue in terms of assuring everyone has access to the Internet at useful speeds. But I would say that, uh, that we're starting to see a significant investment in Internet access. Now, if you want, I can go on and talk about the web-related side of things, which is a, a very different story in some sense. Please. So if you think of the World Wide Web as this other layer on top of the basic Internet, think of all the products and services that are currently offered through that platform. Uh, and they are countless for all practical purposes, and they are increasing in complexity and utility. The, uh, the smartphone is, I would say, a uh, poster child for uh, utility and complexity and richness with all the devices that it has on it. I mean, it's got microphones, it's got multiple cameras, uh, it has computational capability, it has motion sensors. It, it, it's just an astonishing compendium of functional capability on top of which applications can be built. 
And so when you, as I said before about layering being very important, the layering in the mobile is important. You don't have to know how the mobile works or how 4G or 5G works or how the internet works to build an application for a mobile. You just have to be able to meet the spec that the application programming interface of the smartphone maker exposes to you to allow you to interact with the web on the other end. So at this point, I would say that we still see an endless frontier of application space uh, for the World Wide Web. Uh, but we're, what we are also seeing and experiencing is abusive behaviors in this environment. And the abuses cover all layers of protocol. So there's malware that shows up everywhere, the IP layer, the TCP layer, the UDP layer, and the attacks against operating systems with packets, the packet of doom showing up. Uh, so we have serious problems with uh, people who deliberately introduce malware into the system either or, or ransomware in order to either extract money from somebody or simply interfere with their ability to operate. And this goes all the way up to includes nation states who are you know, practicing all kinds of black arts or dark arts, if you like, in this environment for their own purposes. Then there is misinformation and disinformation showing up in the, especially the social media, which is a phenomenon which has evolved in the recent, let's say, 10 to 20 years. And again, this is evidence of human foibles, I would say, uh, and incentives and motivations. People are frequently motivated to take otherwise neutral technologies and abuse them for their own purposes. Just like a hammer can pound a nail, it can pound a head, and it's a decision of a human being, you know, which of those two is the target of the hammer. So we have a real social and economic challenge before us in the abuse of a lot of these technologies. And I don't have a magic wand that says, here's how you solve the problem. We have legal attempts to deal with the problem, like Section 230 and the Telecommunications Act here in the U.S. We have GDPR, among other things, in Europe. But these are problems that are a side effect of human nature. And solving the problem of human nature is, is a non-trivial exercise, which has probably been going on for as long as Homo sapiens has existed. Uh, and so we're talking a few hundred thousand years, or certainly at least tens of thousands. So these are not going to be trivial problems to solve. And I don't pretend for a moment that their solutions lie in technical means. I think a lot of it has to do with how do you create incentives, whether they're legal incentives or financial incentives or social incentives to alter behavior, to reduce the level of harmful behavior and increase the level of useful behavior in the online environment. Lovely. And this is a great segue actually into what has internet enabled? Like how has it impacted the human civilization from your vantage point? Well, I would say that the most significant impact of the internet is, uh, is visible through the World Wide Web because it, it simplified the ability to create and share information. And of course, so much information was being dumped into the World Wide Web, you needed search engines to find it, which has turned into a big business, including for my own company, Google. So what has happened is this facilitation and enabling of information sharing 
which is exactly what Tim Berners-Lee was hoping would happen. Although I think I'm sure there are a lot of other things that have happened as a consequence that he wishes were different. But this is a, I believe, a transformative, has had a transformative impact on uh, humanity because of the fact that the information is so readily available. The fact that it's digitized is also very interesting because it's non-rivalrous, which is an economics term, which just means that I can, you can share your digital information with me without losing your own, as opposed to handing me a copy of a book, which means you don't have it anymore. And so this digitization uh, has a profound effect, has had a profound effect in several different dimensions. One of them is the non-rivalrous ability to share information. Another one is the fact that it's digital means that it is subject to computing. It means that we can apply computer cycles and algorithms in order to analyze and manipulate and extract and otherwise process digital information. And so this has led, for example, to extraordinary ability to do searches to find useful information that's, you know, with some precision to translate speech into text, to translate text in different languages, to, to use machine learning to uh, search for images. There's just, just it's endless possibility introduced by digitization and, of course, the use of computers and our learning of how to use them more and more effectively. So multi-layer neural networks perform extraordinary tasks. The thing is that they are so extraordinary, including things like, you know, winning four games out of five of Go some years ago now, which just shocked everybody. And yet they're also very brittle. And they, they, we don't, they don't always work the way we expect them to, uh, or we hope that they will. And the reason is that some of the mechanisms are rather obscure. When you look at machine learning, multi-layer neural networks, the training that goes on, you end up with basically a gigantic web full of probabilities and the processing of information going in at the top goes through all of this probabilistic handling based on training and then something comes out the bottom. And when it doesn't work right, you are often very puzzled. Like somebody shows the system a picture of a cat and it says it's a cat. And we say, good, that's what we trained you to say. And then an adversarial system goes in and changes three or four pixels of the cat image, which a human looks at and says it's a cat. And the system looks at it and says it's a fire engine. And, you know, we look at that and we say, how the heck could that be? And the answer is, well, the way in which this system was uh, was trained I can't, I can't drop down into, you know, the hyper, hyperspatial plane explanation here, but, but the mechanism of recognition in a multi-layer neural network is not the same as the kind of abstraction that human beings do. So our brains apparently don't work the way the neural networks do, despite their nomenclature, because we do better in many cases than the networks do. Now, there are other examples, however, where the neural networks actually do better than humans do. But the imagery in this particular case is different. The image processing is different. So at this point, I would say that so much more value has come out of the internet and the web and the applications that sit on top of it, in spite of the harmful things that we worry about and struggle with. I would say that the net here is super positive 
Of course, you'd expect me to say that given, you know, that why would I say anything else? Uh, but I truly believe that. I believe that, that our, the benefits are still more, many, many more benefits are yet to come. And we just have to try to do what we can to reduce the level of harmful effects that we can see emerging. Humans interacting online or on internet has had a profound impact on their lives offline in the real world. Could you speak to that? Well, uh, several things occur to me. One of them is the ability to discover people who have similar views and similar interests. And uh, this has both a positive and, and potentially negative character to it. The positive side, of course, is discovering someone with the same enthusiasms you have or knowledge that you need. And with the with the ease with which we can do it now, thanks to all these computer mediated communication uh, mechanisms, accelerates our ability to collaborate and cooperate. And you can see this in the vaccine production uh, over the past year or so. The stage was set for that, frankly, many years before in terms of technologies uh, of uh, of identifying. DNA sequences or RNA sequences and the ability to do manipulation with CRISPR-Cas9, among other things. Uh, but the information that was needed in order to achieve the vaccines was also a consequence of sharing on the internet and collaboration. And so I see that as, a, as a, uh, a huge benefit. At the same time, we can also see harmful things happening like collaboration to uh, assault the Capitol in the United States on January 6th technologies or the Tahrir Square uh, insurrection in Egypt some years before. All of those things use the same basic internet technologies, but to different effect. And once again, we're back to the observation that, that in large measure, not absolutely, but in large measure, these are neutral technologies which bend to human purpose or can be bent uh, to human purpose. And so now we're challenged as a species and as a society to try to create incentives for better use of these technologies and to somehow suppress their abuse if we can find ways to do that. Do you think humans are becoming more sovereign because of Internet? No, actually, I don't think so. In fact, I think oh, they may feel that way. You may feel empowered. You know, I can do whatever I want. I can search for whatever I want, share information with whomever I want with all these different you know, methods. So, you know, I, I have freedom like I never had before. On the other hand, I think it's vital to point out that as a society, we are becoming increasingly dependent on more and more complex infrastructure. And that complex infrastructure may or may not be robust. So uh, a near-term example of this is what happened in, in uh, the state of Texas in the U.S. when the uh, electrical power grid went out because people there had not taken into account what happens when the temperatures get really low. They, they'd even seen the effects in 2011 and didn't learn from it. With one exception, I think El Paso paid attention to that and revamped their system to deal with uh, low temperature operation. But the rest of the state apparently didn't. 
So there is a good example. Electricity is so fundamental to everything we do, including the internet and smartphones and you know laptops and desktops. When the electricity goes away and you have no backup for it, a huge amount of your normal day and life evaporate, and for which we do not have very good backup. So I am extremely concerned right now about our persistent investment in more and more complex technology, which may or may not work when we need it to. And so I like to think or ask people to think more and more about how to build more resilient, possibly redundant systems, systems that involve lots of backup, and and to give serious thought to how to mitigate the risk of dependency on an increasingly layered and complex infrastructure. And I would guess that the story of humanity has been the creation of increasingly complex infrastructure. And it, it makes life wonderful when it works. It makes life miserable when it doesn't. And I would like us to pay a little more attention to how to make sure that it works most of the time, if not all of the time. Designing for fault tolerance? Yes, for sure fault tolerance, for sure fault tolerance. But also, I mean, we need to get into the, you know, three nines, four nines, five nines argument. Imagine for just a moment that uh, the Internet of Things takes off, which it appears to be doing. The last thing in the world you want is a light switch that works 85% of the time or a refrigerator that works 90% of the time. You really want to see lots and lots of reliability in here, uh, in addition to fault tolerance. And uh, I think we don't pay enough attention to that because that sometimes costs money. And if you're in a competitive environment, some people are unwilling to recognize that paying more for resilience, reliability, and robustness and backup uh, is worth it. And they will often not think about that in the instant until then it doesn't work. And when it doesn't, well, I have a good example. I live in Northern Virginia and for two periods of time, five days each in the same year, we had power outages in a suburban part of Northern Virginia, which is very well developed and, you know, it has highly uh, sophisticated infrastructure and everything else. We still lost power for five days, twice in one year. And I have a wine cellar with a couple thousand bottles in it. So this was very disturbing. And so I installed a 50 kilowatt generator in the backyard that runs off natural gas and it gets tested once a week for 20 minutes. And we have, it has been invoked a few times, not every, you know, not frequently, but a few times uh, for periods of two or three days or more. And so uh, from my point of view, that was a worthwhile investment to have the backup. But again, some people will say, yeah, but it's natural gas and you're polluting the atmosphere. And my response to this is, yes, I know, but I only actually run it infrequently. And so I don't produce a lot of pollution all the time, just when everything else is not available. How important is permissionless innovation? I'm curious to hear your thinking on that. So uh, I found that, again, I want to come back to my point about this technology being an enabling technology. 
And certainly, if it is an enabling technology, and it turns out you have to get permission before you can use its enabling capability, then you're going to stymie the potential exploration of ideas and innovation. So at no time during the course of its evolution did I ever advocate for anything other than allowing people to try things out. When we designed the protocol architecture, the the layered architecture, we wanted it to be extensible in both vertically and horizontally. So if at a given layer you decided that things didn't weren't working the way you wanted to, you could add another element along that layer. So IPv4, IPv6, how about TCP, how about UDP, how about other, you know, RTP, other things that go at those layers. And the same thing is true as you work your way up the stack. So uh, I wanted it to be implicit that if you wanted to, you could define a new protocol anywhere in the layer. Whether anyone adopted it or not is, is uh, of course, a, a different story. Whether it even got standardized or not is a different story. It doesn't have to be standardized. If you're in control of both ends of the software, as you might be if you had software running in a mobile phone and software running in a server, whatever it was you did in the app needs to be matched by the server if you need a client-server uh, relationship. But you don't have to have that standardized. That can be yours, unique. You can patent it You could, if it's patentable, uh, or you can certainly treat it as proprietary. And that's not harmful. But, but you had, you should have the freedom to do those things. And then, of course, if you want to standardize it and make it available to others, you should be free to do that as well. So this notion of permissionless innovation, I think, is a very critical part of the Internet's success story. We've touched on some aspects of this, but the beautiful thing of, I guess, being human is we can run these interesting things called thought experiments. And if you would think about this as a thought experiment, how would you characterize or think about the ideal state of the internet? Well, I think if you were to write a paper called Desirable Properties of the Internet, I think you would probably come to a similar conclusion. You'd want it to be reliable. You'd want it to be safe to use. You'd want to protect privacy. You'd want it to be secure. You'd want it to be affordable. You'd want it to be accessible in every sense of the accessible word, whether it's people with disabilities who need assistive technology or accessible because it's available to you somewhere uh, that, you know, in an obscure part of the world. And so you'd want all of those properties to be available, observed. I won't use the word enforced because that's not I don't I'm not looking for a kind of a top down response here, but not enforced, but at least facilitated. So you'd want all those properties to to emerge from the implementations that are available to you. And so those are the the kinds of things that uh, I could wish that we could achieve. And of course, we won't achieve all of them in all the measures that I would hope for. But I hope that the businesses that rely on the Internet or the businesses that provide the Internet uh, and its services would choose to echo those properties on the grounds that that makes the product or the service more attractive to the consuming population, whether it's consumers or business or government. So uh, that's, you know, that's how I would look at it anyway. Given that backdrop, 
how do you think about sort of the practical risks and challenges right now? At the moment, plainly, abuse of the system, uh, whether it's, you know, including the World Wide Web, uh, abuse is, is, is a clear problem. And it's so challenging because the Internet was designed to be non-national in its architecture. I probably should have mentioned that earlier, but when Bob and I were, Bob Kahn and I were thinking about how we would do this, we concluded that we did not want to use an addressing structure that mirrored the telephone system. In the telephone system, because telephony was often a national service, that is to say offered by the government as opposed to a private sector thing, which is more the US case, because it was uh, a national service in many countries, country codes were identified so that the telephone numbers would be contained within a country code. And we got, we were thinking about, well, wait a minute, you know, we're designing the system for command and control for the American Defense Department. And we didn't know which countries would be in, involved. And we certainly didn't want a situation where you were planning a military operation and would have to get address space from the country you were going to have to invade before you could invade them because, well, you know, hi, we're going to invade you in a couple of weeks. Can we have some address space so our command and control system will work? Well, that's silly. So uh, we said, let's design this to use topological addressing. So each network got its own network ID, but it didn't matter physically where the parts of the network were. It could be anywhere in the world. It's just the connectivity that was important. And then the connectivity between the networks, which is the topology of the internet, uh, was determined by the routing system referring to network addresses. So uh, every network address had a network number plus an address saying which host was where, but it was not based on national boundaries. So the internet doesn't know that portions of it have crossed an international boundary. And that was a desirable feature from our point of view. The side effect of that is that when you build applications on the internet, they don't know that they've crossed national boundaries at all. There are attempts to map IP addresses into national boundaries for a bunch of different reasons, but they're only approximate. And again, that's a deliberate uh, d design point. So, so this notion of, of non-national character means that if there is an abuse that's happening, it can evil, it, it often be the case that the victim is in one jurisdiction and the perpetrator is in another, even possibly crossing national boundaries. So now we have a jurisdictional challenge to cope with harmful behavior because it may need multiple jurisdictions to collaborate with each other or even come to common agreement about what's acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And of course, we're not likely to get a uniform code of justice across every country on the planet. So now we're struggling to deal with tracking people down who are causing harm, whether it's criminal or, or civil harm. And we need cooperation and agreement on international boundaries, across international boundaries. Uh, we need processes and practices that allow us to track down people who are uh, exhibiting harmful behavior. And of course, then we run into this problem of, well, what about privacy and how do we assure privacy? At the same time, we have to be able to identify people behaving badly and so as to apprehend them. And so we are in the middle of a, of a tussle 
in cyberspace, to borrow a, a term from one of the other early internet pioneers, David Clark at MIT, who uh, wrote an article called Tussle in Cyberspace relating to governance questions, not unlike the ones that I just described. So we are now on the, at the point where the internet has become super important and the web on top of it, and so important from the social and economic point of view that we now have to figure out, well, how are we going to manage this thing from the governance point of view? And there is has been, continues to be great debate over what elements need to be governed and by what means and by whom and how will the rules be determined and who will enforce them and how will they enforce them? Uh, how will we create incentives for people to follow rules that we commonly agree are beneficial to everyone? So that's the kind of the essence of the governance problem. And there are lots of different entities, institutions, that are increasingly interested in this, including the American Congress, uh, you know, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, the Internet Governance Forum, the United Nations. Well, the list goes on and is growing. So it's a very significant challenge. And trying to find a way to achieve the objective, which is safety, security, privacy, and so on, is, uh, is not a trivial exercise. We're seeing extremes coming out of this. The Chinese, for example, built the so-called famous Chinese firewall and are blocking access of their citizens to the rest of the internet when they choose to, uh, however they choose to do that, to say nothing of substantial surveillance in country. And we also get, of course, other, uh, other countries are similarly interested in interfering with freedom of expression and freedom of access to information. So this is a complex and global problem, uh, which doesn't have any simple answers, and we will undoubtedly be struggling to find some uh, over the course of the decades ahead. This is a really interesting topic, and it's interesting, I guess, from at least a couple point of views. One is the internet is so uh, important in terms of instituting change, if you will, but change in itself for the internet is this, I think for, for most people in the world, this mystery, you know, how does the underlying fabric of the internet change who determines that change? It's somewhat nebulous. You penned this interesting, with a couple of co-authors, interesting article, I believe from 2014, speaking about governance. And you really illustrated this in a crisp way. You talk about a multi-stakeholder approach. You talk about the tussle like you alluded to earlier. You uh, highlighted these various layers, infrastructure, logical content, and social. Can you speak in a bit more detail about the framework that you would like to see in terms of governance going forward? Because this really seems to us as one of the biggest challenges facing the internet. So, uh, well, there are many things that are happening in this space motivated by a variety of, of different objectives. For example, if you think for a moment about the free flow of information across international boundaries, it's vital to certain aspects of internet. For example, the business that we're in at Google involves putting up data centers in a number of different places in the world in order to bring computing power closer to the users, but also to distribute uh, the computing power, so the loss of any one data center doesn't lose 
information. So we actually use our own internal networks running at super high speeds to copy data from one data center to another in order to assure that even the loss of a whole data center does not lose data. Well, that involves cross-border data flows, and there now are all kinds of issues associated with, well, that's personal information, and you shouldn't allow it to escape my country because I want control over that information. In some cases, because it's safer if it's here in my country, and it's not safe if it's in some other country, which is, I think, not correct, at least in terms of, of redundancy and data integrity and things like that. But there are some countries, for example, who demand that you know the data about their citizens has to stay in their country so they can get access to it, so they can demand access to it. So it's a different motivation than, than uh, you would really think of from the rhetoric that you hear. So on the multi-stakeholder side of things, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers is one of the first organizations to articulate multi-stakeholder policymaking in a, a fairly crisp way. That doesn't mean the process is crisp. It just means the description of it is crisp. And it's important because the idea of formulating policy by getting as many points of view as may be affected by the policy onto the table is very important. Once you come to some agreement about what the policy should be, having looked at it from a wide perspective, the enforcement of that policy might be delegated delegated to some particular organization. It could be law enforcement. It could be something else. If some of that policy might very well turn out to be technical. And so policy could arise in the context of standards. Uh, in other cases, it's usage. Uh, in other cases, it's law enforcement. And so you have this principle of multi-stakeholder policymaking, which applies to technology and legal matters and law enforcement and financial uh, agreements, trade agreements and things like that. So the the multi-stakeholder process is a very flexible and powerful mechanism and method. And I'm I'm a big fan of that at all layers in the architecture, including the UN, which is foreign to the UN's thinking. The UN is United Nations. This is about nations talking to each other and agreeing on uh, policy and process. And yet there are uh, people and institutions are affected by those choices. And so, again, I'm a big fan of using multi-stakeholder methods. Uh, there's another paper, maybe it's the one you were referring to, might have been another one that uh, I wrote with some colleagues uh, for the Internet Governance Forum on fragmentation of the Internet. And uh, we see lots and lots of fragmentation manifesting in, in different layers in the architecture by different means. So it could be interfering with connectivity by blocking certain kinds of routing across the network or blocking of IP addresses or blocking of domain names or interfering with certain websites or uh, blocking of certain applications like voice over IP is sometimes blocked by some countries whose telephony service is considered to be a piggy bank and they don't want anybody undermining the, the uh, income from voice telephony, and so they'll block voice over IP in order to prevent what we're doing right now from happening. So uh, there's a, a wide range of fragmentation, manifestations of fragmentation that are both possible and uh, and documentable. Uh, and we, I think to the extent that we want to avoid fragmentation, we have to recognize what's motivating it and try to find ways of correcting that. How do you see the future of internet evolving? Are there things 
which internet has not enabled yet, which may lie in the future? Well, first of all, we're, we're only beginning to see the Internet of Things. So and a pandemic has demonstrated the utility and value of remote sensing, for example, for you know, what's the state of your body and physiology, being able to visit the doctor remotely, providing all kinds of information about your current physiological condition is uh, a process that's underway. More and more of that will happen. So the idea of remote medical care is uh, increasingly feasible. Uh, I didn't mention anything at all about space exploration, so I guess I should point that out. In 1998, a group of us at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory got together after the successful landing of the Pathfinder robot on Mars after 20 years of failures uh, since the Viking landing in 76 and said, what should we be doing uh, to be ready for what's needed in 2025 or so? And uh, we said, why don't we figure out how to build a, an interplanetary extension of the Internet? Is it possible to network the planets and the, their satellites and you know, the rest of the solar system in order to support manned and robotic space exploration? And so we began the design of an interplanetary Internet. And we started out thinking TCP IP would work just fine until we started doing the math and discovered that the speed of light is too slow. And so round trip times are variable because the planets are in their orbits and they're different distances from each other, depending on where they are in their orbits. They're also rotating, which means if you're talking to something on the surface and the planet rotates, you can't talk to it until it comes back around again. So we have a variable, variably delayed and disrupted environment in which the TCP IP protocols tend not to be sufficiently robust. So we've developed a whole new suite of protocols we call the bundle protocols, working with the consultative committee on space data systems, which is made up of all the countries who are spacefaring right now. So ESA and JAXA and uh, the uh, CARI in, in Korea and uh, NASA here in the US are all part of this process. We're standardizing the protocols. They've been implemented. They're freely available, just like the internet protocols were. The specs are freely available. They're in the Internet Engineering Task Force and the Consultative Committee on Space Data Systems. We are operating with the most recent protocols on the International Space Station. We have prototype software running on Mars and the orbiters and the, and the ground vehicles like the rovers that just landed uh, have been running since 2004 using prototype software. We're hoping to be a part of the upcoming uh, Artemis mission to return to the moon and the Gateway program that's part of that. And then, of course, going on to Mars later on. So this is a very exciting evolution for, uh, for Internet concepts. It's not the Internet of the TCP IP world, but it is the uh, concept of Internet is being reintroduced now in this uh, much larger scale solar system-wide environment. I'm very excited about that. That is pretty fascinating. As humans discover the universe, internet goes along, along with them in some shape or form. That's I right. Now, we, we still have a serious problem with the speed of light delay, though. I, mean, I, I asked the Lincoln Laboratory guys to analyze what it would take to do an interstellar extension of the network. And we are by their calculations on all aspects of the problem, 53 dB away from being able to build anything useful when it comes to interstellar communication to the nearest star, which is only 4.3 light years away, the Centauri system. So 
there's a lot of work to be done to get outside of our own solar system. What motivates you? Curiosity uh, and the desire to build things that other people can use. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? Non-consensus views? Wow. Well, uh, at the moment, I'm very suspicious about you know, uh, quantum entanglement because there's something that doesn't make sense about the you know, entanglement working over arbitrarily large distances. So we have busted theories right now that I don't, I'm not satisfied with at all, even though they work yeah, almost. <laughs> That's a good one. What or who has had the most impact on your thinking career or life? Three people, really. Um, one of them is uh, Bob Kahn, with whom I have worked off and on for 50 years. Uh, similarly, Stephen Crocker, my, a high school friend with whom I have also worked off and on for more than 50 years now. And my wife, Sigrid, whom I've been married to for more than 50 years. And so the, the, this half century relationships with those three people, among others, have been, really been essential to me, my personality, my career and any success that you could attribute to that. What are you currently reading? Uh, actually, I've been reading a bunch of science fiction. There was a guy whose name, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. It's so embarrassing. I think it's William Davis, but don't, don't kill me if I'm wrong. He's written four novels about the Bobiverse, B-O-B-I-V-E-R-S-E. It's about what happens when you die. This guy is put into an, uh, a technical matrix, his personality is uploaded into a computer, he becomes immortal, and he can replicate himself, and all kinds of consequences stem from this capability. So it's been a great deal of fun. I'm also reading, you know, uh, less entertaining kinds of things, the most cogent of which is a book called Behave by Podolsky at Stanford. I find this among the most intriguing books to read right now because I've been trying to understand why people think the way they do. And this one is a really, really helpful exposition on the topic. And who are your favorite writers or podcasters more generally? Well, writers, uh, again, I'm a huge science fiction fan. And so I, I love, you know, Hein early Heinlein, uh, Asimov, for example, nuts and bolts kinds of science fiction. Orson Scott Card, I like for a different reason. He dives into the personalities of the characters and writes from so many different points of view. It's, it's a hugely rich exploration. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.